0: Hello and welcome to Minta Dialogue, episode number 162. This interview is with Mark Schaefer, the globally recognized author, educator, and speaker on marketing strategy. Author of five best-selling marketing books, including The Tao of Twitter, Return on Influence, and this year, Content Code, Mark also co-hosts with Tom Webster a fabulous and unmissable marketing podcast. In this podcast, together with Mark, we talk about branding and how companies can better drive trust. We look at how top executives are be driving the digital agenda within their companies and also explore the issues of privacy for marketers. A most zesty interview. Welcome to the Minto Dialogue podcast where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset. That's M Y N D S E T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. And enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to The Today I'm sitting in beautiful Montreal, and I'm piped in with someone who I've been uh, listening to, uh, reading, and really enjoying, uh, Mark Schaefer. So tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset, Mark? Welcome to the show. <sighs>
1: Well, first of all, that's so very kind of you to to say. Uh, I, it always just blows me away when people spend time with uh, my podcast or my blog or my book. So, thank you very much. Um, I am, uh, I guess, it, it, in my heart, uh, I'm a teacher in everything that I do. I, I am an educator at uh, Rutgers University, and I feel that whenever I Uh, speak or give a workshop or or write, that I'm always kind of in a a teaching uh, frame of mind. And uh, as far as my mindset, um, I think that uh, really what I try to live every day, it's really a mindset of reinvention, I think. And it's, it's curious because the reinvention seems to be coming faster and faster mm-hmm. <laughs> these days. I went through a period of my career where about every five years I reinvented myself. Yeah. I, I, I kind of went from journalism to corporate communications and corporate communications to sales and then sales into global marketing and then I became entrepreneur and a teacher and these days, I think the mindset has to be constant reinvention. It all always makes me a little sad when I see a Twitter bio uh, or a bio on LinkedIn that starts with the word former. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I want to know what you're doing today. How are you being bold today? How are you making a difference today? And I think we we need to be constantly looking around uh, ourselves in, in you know, 360 degrees. What's going on in the world? How is it going to impact me? How do I need to adjust?
0: So first point of call, re- reevaluate your 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 bio, guys, so that you are showing <laughs> what you're doing today. I you know I, it, it makes me think of um, something that really drives me bonkers in France where they will write up a new, a new promotion for somebody in the sort of the pink or the financial portions of the papers, I think of the Figaro in particular. And so they have these little things. And it will be something like Mark W. Schaefer, comma, age, comma, uh, um, graduated from high school or college, comma from some, certain such a college. And so we, we've done already two lines of this little thing, and, and none of which tells you anything. Yeah. I mean, it tells you where you went to school thirty years ago. I mean, in my case, and I just, I just, and then the, you know, such such got promoted to. Not why they got promoted to it, or you know, what they did in order to get promoted to it. That's just yeah. that's how it is. Anyway, <laughs> go me crazy. Yeah,
1: I mean, how really relevant is is age today? How really relevant is? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the stuff I learned in the university. Prepared me for maybe my first two years in the workforce, and then after right. that, it's it's reinvention. Well, it's, it's uh, re-learning I, you know,
0: reinvention. I even I even think my business school taught me nothing. It taught me what to do uh, in forty years time because I remember, you know, like, well, if you had to fire thousand people at a time, what would you do? How would you do that? And like, wait a second, I don't even have a team of one yet. <laughs> Um, so we just, see, Mark, you were just talking about reinvention. I, I didn't. I, we, I know we didn't plan this, but you know, what do you think of the Google shift? Because you know that I would say is an example of always trying to reinvent, you know, mm-hmm. on the fly in a very yeah. new, novel way. What's your spin on on the Google spin?
1: Well, um, you know, I I admire Google in in some ways. I uh, I I think the new structure is uh, is needed. I think it solves a lot of problems. I think it provides much-needed focus. One of the things I worried about with Google is that they were just into so many diverse things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, how can you really be focused on search if you're also working on self-driving cars and yeah. the million other things that they're working on? So I think the new structure really provides focus. Now, the, the one thing that that I I I wonder about is they have this so admired and it's, and it's an iconic company and it has a very famous, uh, uh, kind of a, a, a famous reputation as an amazing place to work. And, and a lot of young people, I think, look up to Google and rightfully so. But this whole mantra of fail fast bothers me because mm-hmm. if you look at some of the greatest products, some of the greatest inventions in history, never would have made it if they had this fail fast. And even some of the greatest products we're seeing on the market today might have taken years to develop. Sometimes you need patience, you need iteration. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the failure isn't it has nothing to do with the product and everything to do with the timing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um and, and from my own experience I, I've been involved in projects that, uh, that had this fail fast mentality and as you look back a couple of years later you thought oh my gosh if we would have just stuck that out for another year we would have been the first to market look how successful this is today so it's something that uh, you know it's a big part of their culture uh, but uh, it, it, I'm not a fan of that
0: well uh, just thinking about my I, I worked for L'Oréal for 16 years and we had the culture of new N-E-W, put that on, anything you can. And I kind of think that's almost the counterpart to fail fast. It was all about, you know, creating something new, whatever it is, le- well, as long as we can write new on it, that's good. And it's, it comes back to a little bit the fail fast kind of mentality. I mean, even if it might be iterative in some regards, mm-hmm, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're layering on a new component. Instead of 13.2 less wrinkles, yeah. you have 13.3 less wrinkles.
1: Yeah. Well, I've mentioned uh, in my blog a couple times, in fact, I, I wrote an entire post about a book last week called uh, Innovation and in Entrepreneurship uh, by, by Peter Drucker. And mm-hmm. I had the great fortune to actually be a student of Peter Drucker for three yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And um, in that book, he talks about that, that, that real great entrepreneurs, they're not the wild-haired people in the basement, you know, blowing up things up and saying, Eureka, it's, it's iteration, it's Mm -hmm. building on other, uh, inventions. And, um, I think that this idea of looking for, you know, today, one of the words going around is, Uh is, is the unicorn, you know, the, the billion dollar idea, the uberizer. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a few of those. But most entrepreneurs want to innovate and, and progress in a way that avoids big risks. You don't want to take you want to take risks, of course, but you don't want to take a risk that you can't recover from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so this whole idea of, of, of the, this kind of like this failure manifesto mm-hmm. uh, it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, it it bothers me. I don't I don't think it's it's sustainable.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Mark, um, in in terms of mindsets, one of the things that really gets me interested, in, and I look at the United States in particular for it as a sort of a beacon, is how C-suite people should be looking at their presence online themselves. Yeah, yeah. a little bit of a different topic, but
1: you know that's what... a great question, uh, and um, there's been a lot discussed about that and 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 written about that. Um, I'm a very practical person. I'm a very realistic person. And I've worked with uh, big companies for more than 30 years. And I've worked with senior executives for more than 30 years. And I think there are a number of folks out there that that say, well, you know, everybody needs to build their personal brand and everybody needs to be representing their company on social media. And, and I don't necessarily agree. If you look at the, the pressures of, of of the C-suite and all the things they need to be working on mm-hmm. and the, the intense pressure on their time do you really want these people to be tweeting Do you really mm-hmm. want these people to be blogging if I, if I'm a board of director on the board of directors I'd be I'd be kind of wondering geez uh, madam uh, is this really the best way you can be spending your time It's almost like mm-hmm. should the, should the CEO be doing the company newsletter well the answer is no now what I do think appropriate is that the C suite needs to know enough about the digital space to lead I don't think they necessarily need to be but they need to know enough to ask the right questions I think that's what leadership is about Mm -hmm. now if they happen to enjoy that sort of thing Mm -hmm. If you're an executive that really loves to, to to write and you want to be a thought leader and you want to lend your views and your passion to the brand, well, I think that's a bonus. I think that's fantastic. But I would never set an expectation of a C-suite executive that you've got to be online, you've got to tweet, if they really don't have any interest in that.
0: Yeah, I, I a wonderful thought. But… So I, I've got a couple of examples of, of situations that have happened and I think that are emblematic of C-suite not being A, enough to know how to do it and you know, make the judgments and two, since they don't actually do it or are on it they don't even check it. And, and in the end of the day I'm talking about customer experience. So my one example is Louis Vuitton in Paris, where mm-hmm. one of their stores, they had this a digital window where you go and you, and you can sign up for stuff and you interact mm-hmm. with the window. It's not an interactive window, but you, it tells you what to do. You can get an app and check this new information out and surf and you know exclusive stuff. Well, it turns out after two hours, two minutes, sorry, two minutes and thirteen seconds on a four G network on a local telephone in the ray in, in the sun, sorry, um, the the thing fails. And and the mm-hmm. the irony of this is that I went there two months ago and the thing failed two months ago. So the deal is this, is that how can how can this continue on for two months? Is this the is this the messaging you want as the most luxurious brand in the world mm-hmm. to be spending? And so why has that not been checked?
1: Yeah, you know, everything communicates. Everything you say, everything you don't say, everything you do, and everything you don't do. Mm-hmm communicates about your brand. And so I think that's a wonderful example where in a case like that, uh, as the the CEO or someone in the C-suite, you're basically the chief keeper of the brand among other things. Mm-hmm. And if there's something like that, if there's anything that's getting in the way of the customer experience for a luxury brand like that, then, I mean, it has, it has to rise to the top. Uh, immediately, uh, just absolutely no question, and spare no expense getting the thing fixed.
0: Mm-hmm. But again, well, for me, the challenge is having that obsession drilled down into the organization. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if the CEO said, "Well, you know, it's really important, but you know, I don't want to do it," it it it, it doesn't half it doesn't really fly for me. Or at least it doesn't it doesn't fly. It doesn't it won't drill down into the organization so that the the next level of people will will be operating well. You know. You know, you must do it, but I'm not going to check.
1: I think it really, your example really falls into this same idea I was talking about, where the C-suite needs to know enough to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. In this case, that you know, the the, the, the C-suite, they're not going to fix it, they're not going to do the, the the coding, but they need to understand how this fits into the brand ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And understand what is the impact, and then take the steps to correct it immediately. Well,
0: well the other thing, though, is the customer experience. And so, let's go back to our um, often, let's say, uh, talked about person, Mister Jobs. the The notion of understanding what the customer is going through. And mm-hmm. if you're you're sitting in the near C suite, and the agency comes in and, and gives you a pitch, forty five minutes. Hey, you know, this is what you need to be doing. You should be doing more interactive uh, windows, and so on, and so forth. So as much as you want to be intelligent and understand the concepts what's our return on investment going to be the number of downloads okay i can kind of get all that but mm-hmm. the notion of the customer experience which is part of the brand experience yeah. you need to have an obsession so my feeling is the ceo should think about well what is the average person going to be doing in the street and how are they going to be interacting with this window and and, and is that a good absolutely. experience absolutely at the very and, least and, and, ask
1: that question. i find with the best executives it's an instinct uh, and I, and I think there's a lot of power in that. I had an experience where I got to work on a project with Harley-Davidson
2: hmm.
1: and uh, I was in the, the, the metals business and we had developed this uh, metal where it would resist dirt and grime so it would always be shiny. <laughs> as a piece on the the bike. Now, mm-hmm. intellectually you're thinking, wow, this is a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. This the people are going to fall over themselves mm-hmm. trying to get this. So we met with the the, the CEO of Harley Davidson who I, I can't I'm a little foggy but I I think it was the grandson or something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he looked at this and he said, "No, you don't understand. Our customers like to shine their bikes. Mhm. They touch it. Mm. They interact with it. They're, 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 that's how they commune mm-hmm. with our product. We don't want it to resist crime.
0: <laughs> no,
1: now, that is a thing of beauty to me. Yeah. This is a CEO that knows the product and knows the customer so well that he can just react on instinct like that and just know what they need to do to be great. Even if it seems like A wonderful iteration and a great breakthrough. He said, "Nope, we we you know my customers love to touch the bike.
0: (laughs) You know my L'Oreal days in a very similar kind of vein. We're not the company. We L'Oreal was not very good. Is not very good at doing styling products. They have a big business in it, but one of their big problems is they always think it has to be extremely clean. So like there's an intellectual component to how you do this with the with the scientists, and they try to make this great styling products." but it inevitably has to be noble and clean, therefore clean, as opposed to dirty, like get out of bed, n- naughty, which just doesn't you know, didn't fit with the same vibe. Um, so that, I, I love that, the hogs example. So listen, Mark, I, another topic that really uh, you, I would like to share and talk with you about is um, this notion of privacy. And it's maybe hot because of our friends at Ashley Madison. But it, where, where I go with this is that I think that the C-suites, are not enough aware of what's going on in terms of privacy, whether it's the the privacy policy, whether it's the security component versus the being open and sharing transparent, and then even as as an individual online. So let's say that they are not online, but they are surely using their BlackBerry or their mobile, and they are probably interacting occasionally, even though they don't want to, on Facebook with their grandchildren, Um, are they aware of their own privacy settings? And so that's sort of, uh, I wanted to see where where, where you wanted to take that, this whole notion of privacy for executives.
1: Well, this is really uh, a hot button topic with me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so glad that you brought it up because I'm passionate about this idea. And it's really a major theme of the new book I have out called The Content Code. And 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 in this book, one of the things I bring up is this idea of trust really being central to a brand. Now, we talk about that; mm-hmm. That's almost assumed today. Mm-hmm. But because of the issues of 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 privacy, of um, uh, there are a whole new. There's a whole new level of expectations around trust, mm-hmm. and if you look at some of the things going on out there today, we talked about uh, Google earlier. You know, here's a company that is routinely being sued mm-hmm. over privacy issues. Mm-hmm. If you look at Facebook, this is a company last year that really I think should be ashamed of some of the arrogant things that they've done with, with personal information. Hmm. I go and visit, I, I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of big companies, a lot of big brands mm-hmm. and I am aghast at what businesses are doing with with private information
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there's, there's not a lot of laws around this yet. The laws have not caught up with the ability uh, that we have in the digital space but that doesn't mean you do something because you can. Mm-hmm. And so I'm searching for what company is going to finally stand up and say, we're going to differentiate ourselves because we will never, ever do anything to put you and your information in this kind of a, of a situation. We're going to have a code of ethics, uh, for, we don't care about what the law says. We are going to be – we're going to go beyond the expectations of the law because we realize the law can't keep up with the issues. And and so we're going to create the standards and we're going to publish those standards. And we're going to have uh, o- ombudsmen who, who keep us accountable. We're going to have transparencies. Name a company that's doing that. Mm. No none that I know of.
0: Yeah. Well Europe is is got another spin on privacy and I would say probably the government or the European regulatory bodies are are, are leading more the, the idea of defending the consumer more I would say than the in the United States.
1: Yeah, I mean they're they're yeah. They're they're trying they're trying to regulate it. And I and I and I think there's even limits to that, because once you once you regulate it, yeah.
2: uh, it's a about month later, the rules.
1: It, it's there's going to be new. Uh, it's going to change. It's going to be obsolete. So, at, at the end of the day, um, you th- th- this has to be driven by business. If you look yeah. at, I mean, I, I, this is kind of a weird way to look at things, but I mean, any major societal changes. Are really driven by businesses, not governments. Yeah. Uh, if you look at what's going on with environmental changes and how how companies are changing their products, it's because they're responding to their customers. It's because they're responding to you know what what needs to be uh, done. I know a lot of people you know uh, have bad views of of big companies, but I, I also think there's a good a good Role that companies mm-hmm. play—that they are leading a lot of this change, a lot of the change hap- going on with um, improving uh, work uh, workplaces uh, in in places like China or the Philippines or something mm-hmm. like that. That's not—it's not taking place because of regulations. It's because of companies are being proactive in these things. Mm-hmm. They need to do the things to compete, and I think that the the same thing. Is going to happen on the on the privacy front as as well, and it, it, I don't understand why companies aren't stepping up in a more forceful way. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons might be because the company that stands out—that's probably mm-hmm. going to be the first company that's going to have a target on their back for hackers.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh,
1: well, but well. I think, and this is very very sad, that today trust is a point of differentiation for a company. Mm-hmm. I think people are, are, are seeking this and if you can find that company that really can connect to you in a human way, in a rare and human way, those are the companies that are going to win. So the, the first
0: point makes me think of the CVS mood, move to not sell cigarettes in pharmacies. Mm-hmm.
1: And so mm-hmm. what,
0: they, what they had to evaluate from a business standpoint was the delta between the loss of business of the cigarettes to the bonus and the feel-goodness and maybe trust factor that came from no longer selling cigarettes
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a good example, and you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yes, they probably did some calculation, but i I think and I hope maybe there was a noble aspect of this mm-hmm. maybe there there, there was a, an aspect to this that said, you know, we're all about wellness how can we be how can we possibly be aligned with wellness if we're proactively profiting from cigarettes so i would hope that 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 played into the thing and and i think maybe that that will go into this um this idea of, of building trust uh, i think that's a good example
0: so but so now i i mean I'm riffing off with it let's say there are a couple of industries that s- seem to stand out and probably have to do more of this idea that you're talking about, which are the pharmaceuticals and the banking industries for different reasons. But in the end of the day, let's say a Sanofi or a Ron Poulenc or whomever goes out and and you know becomes the you know writes down the standard the charter. At the same time, really, is that going to do anything when you still have Google and Facebook and so on? doing all the things that they do behind and or the, the the credit card companies trying to mine all the data. Is it possible for a single company to put a flag in on the beach Uh and say, this is what we believe. And, and, you know, look, we do what we have. We have my ombudsman in place, Uh but uh you know, the fact is that the ecosystem around it means that you're just sort of going to be laughed at.
1: Well, um, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a keen question with a lot of rich implications. <laughs> um, I think the first thing is, is that you use the examples of, of, of pharmaceutical and banking. And, and the, the first point that comes to mind is that this connects the dots with the previous thing we were talking about, regulation. Those are industries. I think those are amazing examples of industries that are highly regulated and the regulations are actually keeping them back from doing the right things in some, mm-hmm. in some cases that the regulations maybe were created in the fifties and the sixties and the set to this world. And, and then you know what does it take to deregulate some of these things? Mm-hmm. So that's a, a great example where the answer is not government regulation. The answer is companies doing, doing the right thing, yeah. doing the right thing and standing out. Now, so that brings us to the second piece is is there hope for companies wanting to do that? And I, and I think there is because an example of a bank to say, look, we know that your that your privacy is is the really the, our ultimate goal. We're a bank. And so here is our pledge. So here is our pledge to you. That we will we will spare no expense on security. That we will have defense industry standard security for our bank. We will lead in security. Uh, if something would ever happen here, you know this is going to be our uh, response to you. Here is our pledge to you. Here is how we will assure you. That uh, you, will, you will never be uh, put at some disadvantage uh, banking with us and having something out of your control. I don't know any bank that has a policy like that. I don't know of any bank that is saying uh, – uh, in some banks, it's funny, there's actually the word trust in their name.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, Banker, but bankers. But, what,
1: but, but, but in this world of, of deep concern – and here's the issue. This problem is going to get much, much worse mm-hmm. because we're in this world of malignant complexity on the web. Nobody understands how the web works anymore. And the more complex it gets, the more vulnerable we become. And so eventually, I mean, I'll make a prediction. In the in the next 12 months, I think we will see some companies start to stand out and say, we're going to lead. We're going to lead in this area of trust and our online presence and our online pledge to you.
0: So where I'm thinking is having been researching this for quite uh, a lot over the summer, I kind of categorized three areas of breaching the trust. The first is as a company, uh, you want to have a personalized recommendation, Mr. Schaefer. I need Mm -hmm. to know a little bit more about you in order to give you a great, deal that makes you really feel satisfied oh great well the consequences of that is i need to have access to a lot more information you're prepared to give to me then the second level is uh, hackers and and so they go in and, and they can breach your you know your statements as you mentioned before and so you have to have that protection against that and you know private your credit card information and all that kind of stuff uh, you know, and we've seen so many examples of that happening. And then the third level is still all the same: government inspection, and and so back end back-door uh, access to data that they're sort of enforcing on banks, for an example, in order to you know under the guise of you know protecting us from terrorists and so on. So the, these three components are, are really, as you say, this uh, you know complex world
1: mm- hmm mm-hmm. well um I recently came across this research. I think it's one of the most important pieces of research that I've seen in terms of the impact on marketing and uh if you i will I'll send you the links mm-hmm. you can include it in Beautiful. in your show notes or in case any of your listeners sure. want want the link, but we can't do anything about hackers. I mean the hackers are going to do whatever they're going to do. It's just kind of out of our control in many ways. The government is kind of out of control in many ways. But here's what we can control as marketers. We can control what we do with personal information, our policy with personal information. And here was the here was the big finding of this research. Consumers are not okay trading private private information for deals and personalization and coupons. They're not. And marketers justify collecting and leveraging this information, but consumers are not okay with that. And the word they used was resigned. Mm-hmm. They're resigned to the fact that they have no privacy today because these marketers are going to take our information and do whatever they want with it anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're killing ourselves as an industry. We're mm-hmm. killing ourselves as a profession by justifying it because we're creating a benefit from the consumer. The consumer doesn't buy into that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that and, and, and so again, it goes back to my point. When is a marketer gonna stand up and say, Look, uh, we're not gonna do anything with this that that you don't agree with? And it's not gonna be some stupid privacy policy that's legalese and whereas this and whereas that that's going to take two hours to read we're going to state very very clearly in in three or four bullet points this is our pledge to you this is our promise to you and if and and we're not we're we're never going to do something with that personal information unless you explicitly agree to what's happening here
0: well i would love that and uh, my sort of critical eye would say until we have an Amazon or a Google or Chris, Apple to degree has tried to put down a, a, a line in the sand on this topic. But I think that we are, <laughs> I think it is, it is the malignancy of our time and and marketers have constantly disappointed uh, consumers. And so that's why they are so low on the ranking trust and that whatever it is that Ipsos or there's like a, a survey that comes out and shows how marketers are are just about as low as used car salespeople in terms of trustworthiness, and so we have this whole new opportunity uh, out there. But it, if we don't do it the right thing, then uh, it's just going to keep on getting bad, and you are going to get more ad blocking. You are going to get more, you know, people. I would say, why, why be loyal to a brand if we know they're all being bad to us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in this in this day and age, there is no more important marketing we can achieve than personal, organic advocacy. And to create uh, a group of customers who proactively promote you, who love you Mm -hmm. and tell other people that they love you, there's got to be an emotional connection to that company and to that brand. And it's just like um, any relationship, it's built on trust. That is the foundation. If there's no trust, you're never going to have advocacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, So I think that we, we, one of the things I, I talk about constantly in my speeches and my classes and in, and in the book is we're a marketing culture obsessed with traffic. Mm-hmm. These people are tourists they're not creating any value to our brand. What we really need to be focused on, especially in luxury goods, is the idea of trust. Trust that's that creates advocacy. That leads to loyalty. In the end, loyalty trumps everything. It doesn't matter what happens in the digital space. It doesn't happen, doesn't matter what the next Facebook is we'll figure all that stuff out but loyalty no no matter what the platform no matter what the hot digital technique is tomorrow we need to be focused on creating a human presence that really creates an emotional connection with our customers that leads to loyalty
0: so my last wig out on this portion mark is as a company So companies are are really uh, constituted by a a set of people and then you have these different corporate structures. And I'm thinking that the fact that publicly traded companies are in such deep doo-doo on a quarterly level, their ability to gauge and wage the long-term battle of that that you're talking about, it's unlikely to be a publicly traded company that's going to do it unless they have an extremely high percentage of the company owned by the owner, like a Brin or Page or, or Bezos. The second thing I'm thinking about is the brands within a company because you can have, you know, let's, if we talk to big companies like that you work with, I can be a big brand, but my corporate brand is not a commercially traded brand, and so the trust that you're talking about is that with the corporation or the individual small brand that's a part of the big brand, let's say GMC as, yeah. as a part of General Motors or Pontiac and then uh, or I'm in another case I'm the corporate brand is the commercial brand and therefore there's a stronger link another Apple it's uh, it's Apple Inc and it's Apple traded
1: you ask really good questions (laughs) 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 oh boy we are really going down an interesting rabbit hole here Uh, you know this is I mean that people would have an emotional connection to the brand itself. So it might be like, you know, Cadillac. I have this image in my mind of my, my father driving a Cadillac and how pink he loved Cadillac. his cat. And I'm making this up. My dad okay. did not drive a Cadillac. It right. wasn't well, pink either. I'm, I'm just reaching here, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, or, or there's a certain product that's just like always been used in my family. So I, 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 feel, I feel good about this. And here's my um, – I, I think there's always a place for that. I always think there's a place for, for heritage and, and legacy. We're always going to have warm feelings about certain brands just because of you know, who they are and what they stand for. Sure. But if you look at the greatest brands, the greatest legacy brands, something like Disney, Coca-Cola, Nike, Nike. They have to reinvent themselves every generation. They have to find out how to be relevant to the the next uh, to to the uh, to the emotions and the values of the next group coming along. And so, I think we, in some ways, we we re- we c- we can rely less. We have to rely less on on the legacy and the heritage. And here's my sense that especially with the with the millennials they're the least trusting generation in history all the research shows that they 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 don't trust anybody but themselves they will trust content shared on the web by a stranger hmm. before they'll trust your brand messaging and advertising mm-hmm. and so i think part of this reinvention part of this of this reconnection with the next generation, I think there, there has to be some human element to it. Um, I, I think that because there is this mistrust of, of labels and, and, uh, and brands um, that the, the smartest brands are going to connect people to people. And here's an example. The Hilton hotel chain has this Twitter handle called Hilton, suggests mm-hmm. and they look for people having travel problems in certain cities in the world. Uh, you know, they're expressing exasperation on Twitter because the heel on their shoe just broke or whatever. And Hilton will go on and they will try to help these people no matter where they are, or what their problem is, even if they're not staying at the hotel, mm-hmm. because this is a, a human personal Expression
2: mm-hmm.
1: of their brand identity of just making it the best place to travel, it's just helping travelers, you know, just ease their their issues in in every single way, and so they're cr- cr- they're connecting real people with real people, mm-hmm. and that is helping them create this emotional uh, connection. Uh, that hopefully will lead to loyalty and trust down yeah. the line. And I think we'll, we'll be, my sense is, is that we'll be seeing more of this type of thing. We'll need to be seeing more of this thing because I think that's really where the values are, are leading in this next generation.
0: Mm-hmm. And on top of that, so there's real people, real problems in real time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. Mark! Oh, fabulous. I have this sneaking impression this I could have done this for a couple more hours. But time is of the essence, and I promised a departure uh, speedily in a couple of minutes. So, Mark, tell us what's the best way for us. What would you like, how would you like people to connect with you, read with you? I know we're going to put lots of little fun show notes about you.
1: Well, I always love hearing from people that uh, might have listened and heard, and heard me on a podcast, so I'd love for your listeners to connect with me. You can find everything about me at businesses grow.com and you can find uh, my books there my my blog uh the podcast i do called the marketing companion with uh my friend tom webster absolute must and oh thank you uh, we have a we have a lot of a lot of fun you do uh, and i do that too and uh it's very entertaining and uh So, But but businessesgrow.com, you can find all my social connections there, and I'd I'd love to to hear from people.
0: Hey, listen, thanks for coming on the show. It's been wonderful hanging with you. Look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it on iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs' Painted Fingers.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way To rid me of the gray and heal me With all your imperfections that you mention in your que o céu sequiu In Our palms make colors blend And look ugly in the end But they're pretty In their own disgusting values We'd hang our portraits in the hallways Make our house guests With all your favorite shades